Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Flashes it away through the covers for four, and England have won the match. Hello, and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket with me, Simon Hughes, in London, and Simon Mann in Sydney, and our special guest, the ITV presenter, Mark Pugach as well joins us for this special podcast. And now, in normal years, the Ashes in Australia would already be underway. So, although this year the series doesn't begin until the 8th of December, we thought we'd start our build-up to Brisbane now with the first of three preview podcasts. And just to say, we'll be looking back on each day's play of the Ashes with a daily podcast. Simon will be commentating from Test Match Special and we'll be bringing in the overnight news from Australia. And, well, Simon, there's plenty already, isn't there? There is. It's, it's, um, it's amazing. It's, it's really newsy. Uh, we were coming out to Australia and we, we had a stopover in Darwin and uh, on the screen in the, in the lounge, the airport lounge, there was Tim Payne uh, bringing his revelations about his texting uh, four years ago. And subsequently, of course, he's standing down as captain and he's not going to play in the ashes. So Australia need a new captain and they've gone for St. Patrick, St. Patrick Cummins the new captain of Australia, and Steve Smith uh, in as vice captain. I, I suppose the, the issue here is, is how much will Cummins play, presumably, you know, all the test matches we possibly can, but there are fitness issues, of course, if you're a pace bowler trying to get through all those overs, back-to-back test matches, and then you know, the prospect of Steve Smith back as Australia's test captain. What do you make of that, Yoz? That's <laughs> interesting, isn't it? I mean, just a fast bowler being captain is, is so rare, isn't it? And it's odd, really. I'm thinking... You know, Bob Willis, of course, captained England a little bit in the in the 80s. But it doesn't happen very often that a fast bowler is in charge. Sometimes it's a spinner who's an all-rounder. Railingworth, of course, won the Ashes for us, for England in Australia in the 70s. But generally, it is batsmen. So it is a departure. It'll be tough because Cummins is the main man. And I think captaining as a fast bowler, one of the reasons that it doesn't happen very often is because you just expend so much energy and passion as a fast bowler and you need to recoup that. You need to, you know, graze down on the boundary or somewhere out of the action. You don't necessarily want to be having to think about tactics and field settings and particular strategies when you are in the middle of a spell. So not easy for, for Australia. Obviously they've been handed this, uh, this problem with with pain suddenly uh, being evicted, if you like, uh, or you know, sort of falling on his sword, or whatever you like. Um, Smith as vice captain, good man. You know, you know, despite his peccadilloes in the past, he's he's a fantastic thinker on the game. He'll be a major asset to Australia as vice captain. Yeah, and I called him Saint Patrick because I mean he he is squeaky clean. I mean, so uh, <laughs> yeah, they probably they, they probably had a look back through all these tweets, or whatever, and look you know look back into any possible skeletons but with Pat Cummins 
yeah, unlikely to to happen. So he he gets on. He was the vice captain, so it's sort of an elevation for him. You know, that has been that comment. You know, can a, a fast bowler uh, be a, a captain, especially when you you know you've got that intensity of an Ashes series with back to back matches. It hasn't happened for Australia since 1956 when Ray Linwall stood in for one test match. I mean, that just shows how rare it is for Australia. You mentioned England, you know, Bob Willis and, and Ian Botham and Andrew Flintoff uh, have done the job, you know, pace bowlers who've done the job for England, but for Australia, way back in, in 1956. Now, England's task in this series, which is, you know, getting underway in just under a couple of weeks, is a considerable one, uh, despite the fact that Australia has suddenly got a new captain. England have won 23 out of 103 tests in Australia since the war, losing 54. And since the Second World War, England have won only five of the 19 Ashes series played between the sides in Australia. They were uh, Len Hutton in 1954-5, under Ray Illingworth in 70-71, Mike Brearley in 78-9. Australia were missing their main players because of World Series cricket then. 1986-7, under Mike Gatting, and in 2010-11 under Sir Andrew Strauss. Now, in this podcast, we're going to look back at that 86-7 series when the two captains were Mike Gatting and Alan Border. I was comfortable. The guys that I got playing in my team were, in my mind, the guys I wanted on that trip. They really were. And there were some young guys in there. There were some, some really experienced guys. And I wasn't actually thinking too much other than you know, I, I'm comfortable. I really am. Um, yes, we haven't done very well. Um, it will be possibly easier to be away from home than at home. Yeah, I, I was I was comfortable with the approach we had. I was comfortable with Mickey. And, you know, when you go away, you can't keep thinking about the past. You know, for me, this was new. I was captain. Yes, I've had a bad, had a bad couple of series. Um, but, you know, sadly, all that melted away quite quickly in the first three or four weeks, um, which was quite extraordinary because, you know, uh, the way that the way that the things went. And I knew having been in Australia and played grade cricket, I knew exactly how tough it would be. And I tried, tried to impress that upon a lot of the youngsters who hadn't been out there. Um, Mickey worked them really hard in the fielding. So we knew fielding was going to be a, a really big thing out there, catching catches. Now catching through the trip was 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 quite extraordinary, really, uh, for 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 the, the trip we were on and the catches we dropped. We dropped very very few and took some some magnificent ones along the way. It then sort of went a bit pear shaped. I've got to give a lot of credit to Bob Simpson, who was our you know, new coach at the time, one of those you know old school professional cricketers. You know, just uh, didn't take any nonsense. Uh, you know, the sergeant major type. So there was a lot, lot of discipline that really came into the side that had sort of gone uh, a little bit, and he was, you know, very good in that that area. You know, so it allowed me to, you know, do my thing and just be my, you know, the best I could be as as the captain leader. But you know, all all those, you know, the practice sessions and the, and the relentless drive that he had for fielding perfection and just doing all the little things well, it just really helped. It sounds strange, you know, at that level, you know, when you're playing for Australia, you should those things would come naturally to you. But sometimes, you know, you just lose sight of the core little things. And we actually introduced some tactics, you know, where we'd like to be after 15 overs, you know, when we're bat first, blah, blah, blah. So we, we sort of had some structure to our game plan, which uh, we'd never had before. Two fine men there looking back at that 86-7 series, Alan Border and Mike Gatting. And like this coming series, England, as Gatting said, were largely written off in 1986, despite holding the Ashes, having won them in England in 85. And you'll remember that famous quote from the English journalist Martin Johnson before the first test. There's only three things wrong with this England team. They can't bat, they can't bowl and they can't field. Now, two other people who were in Australia on that tour were me, working as a, a journalist and, and a cricketer playing for the Sydney University team. And also the ITV presenter I previously mentioned, Mark Pugach, great cricket lover, of course, as well. And he's produced an eight-part podcast series about England's win in 86-7. It's called Inside the Tour. And as I said, Mark is here to look back on that series. So the 86-7 tour, Mark, predates your time as a broadcaster. So why were you there? Hello, yours. Thank you for having me. Hello, Simon in Sydney. Um, I was there because I'd left school in the summer of 86. Cricket mad, as, as you two know, and I think probably quite a lot of people know. And I wanted to have a gap year before I followed you to Durham University, Yoz. 
And I just happened to notice, oh, I tell you what, Australia's a good place to go. It's always been a good place to go for travellers uh, from Britain because you can get a working visa quite easily. And obviously there's no language issue. So I said to my pal, Rob, <coughs> um, whose brother, you know, actually, he's a very good batsman, Rob. Um, well, let's go to Australia. Let's work and let's see how much of the ashes we can um, we can catch up with, which is exactly what we did. And my dad, bless him, said to me before I went, he said, take a, take a, a write a diary every single day. And here it is for those who've got a bit of vision. There's my diary. And I literally every single day I wrote a diary. And if I open it now, there's newspaper cuttings, there's Christmas cards, there's letters from my mum and dad. Those were the days. There's tourist brochures. And there's a lot of cuttings about the ashes. There's quite a lot about football as well back here. And, um, we worked in Sydney in a, in a hotel and we watched the cricket whenever we could. And then I think you and I were both at the SCG, yours for different reasons. I was working in the New South Wales Cricket Association dining room as a waiter doing silver service. I mean, it's a cheat silver service. They go, can you do silver service? Yeah, of course I can, whatever that means. And I vividly remember serving uh, Michael Parkinson and his wife lunch every day because Parky was there a lot. Um, and then we would finish work at about four o'clock and we'd quickly change in the cars. He's run around to the hill and sit on the hill and watch the rest of the day's play. So absolutely, it was fantastic. And one day, but I'll be quite late, one day I did serve Jeffrey Boycott tea. I remember that <laughs> so clearly. And Rob said to me, this might be the only time you ever get to talk to Jeffrey Boycott, if only. And uh, he said, you've got to ask him a question. So on about day four, I said, Mr. Boycott, definitely Mr. Boycott. Mr. Boycott, did you ever make runs here at the SCG? Well, you can imagine Ooh. what his reaction was. Runs? Runs? And if you look it up in 70-71, which you just mentioned, where I think they might have played two tests at Sydney. It was an odd series, wasn't there? There was an extra test match or whatever. He definitely made 100 at the SCG. So brilliant memories. I mean... Mm. fantastic memories and lo lovely to have the diary actually ah. to, to rekindle it i mean i wrote diaries a lot on my tours and and also letters home uh, as well which my mother happily kept and it, it does sort of take you back doesn't it it's amazing right. how a diary reading a diary suddenly kind of colors in all those memories and, and you suddenly remember little details that you've probably forgotten i mean it's i mean bless him he's long long god my dad but the reason i love cricket is because of him i mean he loved cricket so much he started his own cricket club which still goes very strongly to this day and he was the ground he made a pitch out of a field in our village he was the groundsman i was the undergroundsman age 10 painting the lines and getting the chain out and doing the boundary markers and running the bar and so forth and he said to me honestly write a diary every day you won't regret it and you know i mean it doesn't mean anything but you know here we are friday the 28th of november got up and got a bus to circular quay and walked to port jackson pub opposite the regent hotel met sally in there who knows sally is who's and had been <laughs> no, and, no i think we, we need to know who sally I mean, is i don't know who sally is <laughs> sorry Sally. but here we are met sally in there and had beers while watching the test match i mean that's mm. you know that's that's what it is um you know it's just it's just it's amazing and i literally kept i kept you know all the clippings so there was a clipping from the first test when um, Alan Border was so grumpy at the end of it. Here we go. So this is the Sydney Morning Herald, Thursday, the 20, 20th of November, 1986. Uh, the headline is so much for Revival 3. Mike Coward writing the Sydney Morning Herald, a furious looking Alan Border, extremely downcast looking Alan Border having lost. Peter Roebuck, the late Peter Roebuck, like kids without calculators talking about their bowling. And Bill O'Reilly was writing wow. then. Wow. I tell you, I yeah. mean, that was, that's a marvellous trio of writers, yep. cricket writers. I mean, actually, I, I, that was one of the things I, I loved about covering the Ashes was reading. Bill O'Reilly, I remember yep. kind of consuming his because I was working for the Australian, actually, mar yep. largely as a sort of sub-editor, but also writing some some articles as well. Yep. And I remember Bill, Bill O'Reilly appearing every day. Do you know Don Bradman reckons that Bill O'Reilly was one of the greatest bowlers he ever played with? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a strong view. He had a very strong yeah. opinion, and he was a good yeah. writer, wasn't he? Very, yeah. He was a bit right. like the sort of uh, the the Australian Jeff Boycott, I suppose. Yeah. And the, the headline there's an experience not to be relived. I think you know you talked about seventy eight, seventy nine. So at the start of our podcast, you say five times since the war. I've said four times, you know, in the last fifty years, which is my lifetime and and all our lifetimes really. And the reason I wanted to make it was obviously I was there, but also. To win in Australia is so unusual. And the Australians will discount 78, 79 because of Packer, won't they? They'll, well, that doesn't count. So we're down to three now. 
Um, I mean, you know, Simon, you and I were there in uh, 10, you might have been there, I can't remember, 10, 11. It was amazing to watch England win that. But of course so I was there. Bad. Were you there? I can't remember. There yeah, I was. We, we sat on a, I think we sat at a table uh, by the, the river in Brisbane to do a sort of five live special oh, yes, introduction we did. Yes, we did. to the yes, series. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, we know how how unusual it is to win in Australia. And and in a way, 86, 87, I think, has gone under the radar a little bit. But, you know, but that's obviously time. And what's really interesting making the podcast is I think people, I hope people really enjoyed, obviously, all the stories. It feels like the last of the old-fashioned tours, in a way. And what I mean by that is the amount of fun they had in the first month, hence can't back, can't bowl, can't field. I mean, Ian Botham saying to us, David Gower really should not have challenged me to rum drinking in Bundaberg. You know, um, then the America's Cup was on in Fremantle and, you know, they would be asked on to Harold Cudmore, who was the British um, yacht, his boat to, you know, have some fun with the crew members there. You know, it's obviously pre-mobiles. I'm not being naive. It wasn't pre-tabloid press, actually, because Mickey Stewart told me the tabloid press sent through ladies to the Brisbane Hotel uh, but it, right. it's just it feels like the last of the old-fashioned tours where they had mm. a huge amount of fun Elton mm. John EJ the yeah. DJ in both of them calls Elton John was DJing everywhere and I th- you know there's another you know, the, the interesting thing about D- uh, Elton John actually yeah. was that he he'd had a voice operation yeah. and yeah. so he was touring Australia but not singing and just playing the piano and obviously his band were, were doing stuff and I, I funnily enough I mean I'll, I'll come to this story later we, we had an interesting encounter with with Elton John right at the end of the series, I'll I'll as we work our way through those yeah. tests, I'll I'll bring that up at the end. Uh, but but Simon, um, you know, you've obviously done loads of test series in in Australia. Um, what, what's your recollection of eighty six seven? I know you weren't there, well, by the way. Well, 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 watching it from a distance, watching on, you know, all Ashes series in those days, you you, you know, you were, you were sort of thirst thirsty for information. You'd be listening to it on Test Match Special under the you know under the bedclothes at night you know perhaps turning on at four in the morning and trying to just trying to gauge from the commentators how the game was going I mean I I definitely remember listening to the victory at the MCG over Christmas I can remember exactly where I was you know waking up in the night or staying up all all night listening listening to the commentary I think one one thing to to ask Mark is you know that that tour was so successful for England you mentioned the one day series I mean they won the test series 2-1 but they also won two one day series as well there was the Perth Challenge and then the World Series they call it the World Series, but it was a contest between Australia, West Indies, and England. England won the lot. I mean, it was inc- it was an incredible uh, series. What was the feeling at the start of the series? Was I mean, the, the Martin Johnson wrote that "Can't bat, can't bowl, can't field" quote. I think he actually wrote it during the one of the warm up games at the Wacker when England were bowled out for 152 uh, against WA. It, the game was actually finished in a draw, but I think they got bowled out for 150, and they didn't make many in the second innings as well. Um, what was the feeling before the series? Did, did, did anyone give England a chance? I and mean, what does your diary say about that? Or what can you remember it, it, about that? Exactly the same experiences that all three of us would have had, and you're probably having now going to Australia, which is, you know, what you know, you won't be here long, mate. Your team's rubbish, mate. You know, uh, why don't you turn around and go home now, mate? Oh, absolutely. Even though Australia had uh, a rebel tour going on. They didn't lose that many to the rebel tour frontliners they would accept. But 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 even so that, I mean, I don't think any England team has ever been rated going to Australia ever, has it? So it was exactly <laughs> the same. It was exactly the same, particularly off the back of losing a home series to India and New Zealand and both of them had been banned until the last test match and a brand new captain. Oh, it was, you know, no, hopeless, rubbish. And then the, the way they started. But I think that's their default. That's their default position, as you're, I'm sure the newspapers are telling you right now, Simon, despite the, the Tim Payne situation, I'm sure they're writing England off as we speak again. Well, well, I, th- I think there is a feeling that England, yeah, I mean, Mark and Con has already written, you know, it, it doesn't matter who England, <laughs> it doesn't matter who England send, you know, they're yeah. going to be flogged, you know, yeah. whoever whoever comes. And this is before, you know, England were deciding, you know, whether they're going to come or not, and what what was going to be the composition of their of their squad. I think one of the interesting things about this time, and we, we won't we won't dwell too much on this time because we will look ahead to the series in later podcasts. But I think one of the interesting things about this time is actually is that both sides are sort of looking sort of inside rather than at the, at the opposition at the moment. England have got. You know that there's the fallout from the Azim Rafiq uh, affair, and you know there's been a sort of media blackout. So what you what you normally have leading up to an Ashes series is you know that you'll be there'll be a press conference with with an England player 
he'll be sort of goaded into saying something. <laughs> if, if, if you possibly can get something out of him, you know, someone will, and then you'll take that comment to an Australian, he'll respond, and then, you know, there'll be a sort of like, there'll be a sort of media tennis going on. And, it, you know, it, it sort of ramps it all up. But of course, Australia looking internally as well, because they've had their problems with Tim Payne. You know, there's a lot of talk here about, you know, it's, it's disgraceful the way Payne has been treated. You know, the Cricket Tasmania saying it's awful the way he's been treated. Uh, you know, it was dealt with at the time. It was a consensual thing. Uh, but you know, suddenly Cummins is in and Smith is back as vice captain. So there's a lot going on internally and the same with England as well. So in a way, uh, no one's rattling the sabres at the moment. That, 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 that's the situation here, you know, building up this series. It's a unique series. And of course, COVID as well, because uh, we can't get close to the players that, you know, they're in their camp up in up in Queensland. So it's, it's very unusual. It's a, it's a really unusual uh, build up to an Ashes series, and of course the other thing as well, which you probably don't realise back in in the UK, it's been absolutely lashing it down. It's like it, the, the weather's like England. It's rained all day. It's rained all day. Oh, my heart so- bleeds for you. Because <laughs> Simon, you can see you can see the sun. Uh, yours is in London. I'm in Oxfordshire. You can see the sun in our in our two uh, Zoom houses. Well, it's amazing. Well, I, we we haven't we barely seen the sun since, since I've been here. Um, it's, it's it's incredible. And you know, there's there's the talk. You know, there's La, La Nina, and the, the last time La, La Nina was in operation was in 2010-11. And we know what happened in 2010-11. It was the last time England won. Anyway, the feeling is the pitches might be a, a bit juicy. We'll, we'll find out. I'm, I'm, I'm told the weather forecast for Brisbane is, is a little bit better. Let, let's, let's talk about that Brisbane Test match in 86-87. In uh, because England got off to a fantastic start to the series. And I, and I think that's what you've got to do to be successful in, in Australia. You've got to not lose in Brisbane. Yeah, or if you possibly on. can possibly can win there. I mean, England did lose in 54-5 and came back to win the series. But that I, I think I've worked out that is the only time in history um, that Australia have won the Brisbane Test in any series against any team, won the Brisbane Test and lost the series. So that just shows you how important Brisbane is uh, to Australia. So England went to Brisbane, they made 456, uh, Australia 248, they made them follow on. And they didn't get enough, and England knocked them off. I mean, it, you know, remarkable victory. And Ian both Ian both made a hundred in that game. Yeah, and he he often says, I think that that, that was his one of his favourite innings, one probably one of his best innings uh, for England. And it came on the back of, as Mark was alluding to earlier, the the kind of rather chaotic uh, preparations, which included uh, getting, I think, pretty. Uh, worse for wear in a, a match up country in Western Australia, after which both of them the following day, rather bleary eyed, walked out to bat and he forgot to put a box on and he forgot to take a bat out. So <laughs> yeah. the 12th man had to run out and give him his kit as he was out <laughs> walking out to the middle. But 138 in Brisbane was a sort of tone setting innings for the series, wasn't it? Yeah, if you look at, if you look at the interesting thing about that is, which I hadn't realised until we started this, is that because we all remember Nasser Hussain, Border won the toss. I asked Border this in the podcast. Border won the toss and put England in. And I said to him something like, blimey, Alan. And he, I have to say, Alan Border's absolutely charming to interview. Could not have been more charming in, in Brisbane. And I went, blimey, Alan, the amount of stick that Nasser Hussain gets today for doing that in, in 03. And he went, well, obviously, because he played for Queensland, uh, Queensland, I knew it'd be a bit juicy. Interesting that they left out, you know, our friend Jeff Lawson, um, and they played Craig Matthews um, and, and Merv Hughes. And in that innings, as you know, it, we get Ian Botham talking about it, and we get uh, Phil DeFreitas talking about it from the other end, actually, in the stand. Uh, Botham takes 22 off and over from Merv Hughes, and he's not wearing a helmet. The, the faster, and it's with a new ball as well, second new ball. The more he, the faster he bowls it, the shorter he pitches it, the further Botham hits him over square leg with his blonde mullet, you know, flying everywhere in the wind. So, you know, interesting that Border put England in, as you say, 456. Um, your old captain, Mike Gatton, put himself at three yards. Gower normally batted at three, but Gower was, was quite, and admits this in the podcast, quite short of confidence, had obviously been sacked as captain, was a bit insecure, really. Uh, Gat batted at three, got 60-odd. Gower batted at five and got 50, scratchy, but got himself back into form. And then actually, looking at Dilly, Dilly Bob, brilliant, he got five wickets. Um, and in the second innings, your, your friends, the, the spin twins from Middlesex, they had brilliant series. They really did. Embry got five in the second innings. England played two spinners in every test match. Can you imagine mm. that now? They bowled um, 580 overs in the series between them. And and they were just a great... I, I played with them for 10 years. And, you know, they were a great pair, a great combination. 
uh, you know, John Embry meaner than the tax man and <laughs> Phil Edmonds full of spite and variation and, and attacking left arm spinner, probably one of England's finest left arm spinners actually uh, because he had a classic action. He spun the ball. He was tall. He was pretty aggressive. He was in the batsman's face. He wasn't the easiest person to manage as Mike Brearley will often tell you, but uh, he was, a, he was a brilliant cricketer and Embry was a fantastic foil. So they worked tremendously well as, as a pair. Where did you watch that game from, Mark? Did you, were you able to follow? You had your job, presumably, but I, were you able to follow the whole match? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think people probably know that if the test match is in the... If you're living in the test match with the city, as they don't show it on television until after tea. I think they're still doing that now, Simon. You'll, you'll find that out. So I was working, I was working as, a, as a waiter not in a cocktail bar in uh, I was working as a waiter in in a in a hotel in the King's Cross in Sydney which was tremendous fun I mean you know classic gap year job but we would you know we'd be watching whenever we could after work you know nip out at lunchtime I mean it goes for all the first three tests is exactly what we did and and you know it was it was massive news it was as big news as it will be for you now in the coming weeks so yeah I'm working there were about 55 waiters and three of us were English. So we were getting a lot of stick. We made very good friends with two or three of them who I'm friends with today. I mean, literally today, I texted one this morning to say, um, there's a photograph of you on, on the trail on Twitter, uh, Simon, another Simon, um, you know, the MCG. Um, and it was, it was brilliant fun. Exactly the sort of stick that you expect to get um, from Aussies, you know, with the ashes getting going. So England won up after, after Brisbane. I mean, yeah, that, yeah, what, what a start. And you suddenly start to think, well, is, is this possible? What happened in the next two test matches is, is what doesn't normally happen in test matches these days. There were two draws yeah. uh, and two high scoring draws as well. Perth, uh, other, other side of the country, obviously, and different time zone. You can actually get jet lag going to Perth. Mm. It's, it's bizarre in the, in the same country. England making 592 for eight declared, Australia 400. And, and the game sort of rather petered out. Uh, England tried to set Australia a target and they batted out 97 overs, 197 for four. And then Adelaide, um, probably even more of a boring draw. Um, Australia 514 for five, England 455. That, that game uh, petered out as well. But I suppose with England one nil up, that was fine. They didn't. They didn't. In a way, they didn't really care. That it was. You know, they were gradually working their way through the series. I mean, Gat admits to me, particularly in Perth, because Border says, "Oh, Gat was really defensive and didn't set us a target." And uh, Gat says, "We were one up. I had no intention of giving Australia a sniff at all. Why did? Why did I need to?" Remember. For everybody, England held the ashes. So much as they wanted to win the series, all they had to do was to draw it to retain the ashes. So I had no intention of giving the Australians a sniff. In Perth, um, tall man, as we all know, Chris Broad gets his 100 and his mum and dad are in the crowd, which they love. He makes a really nice point to us in the podcast. He goes, when I go and watch Stuart, everyone knows who I am because they know I'm Stuart's dad. But when my mum and dad were in the crowd at the Wacker, no one knew who they were because they were Mr. and Mrs. Broad. Um, and and, and uh, David Gow's batting the other end and says he batted beautifully and obviously the, as we all know the whacker with that extra bounce the ball just came onto him and he could play off the back foot a lot where he was very strong Gower makes 100 loves the whacker and Jack Richards makes 100 he's a fascinating character mm. and we, we tracked him down to Belgium did he went you? To, yeah we, he went his wife's Dutch he retired a couple of years after this series went to work in the shipping industry now lives in Belgium and he's extremely honest with us he says Basically, if you listen to it, he says his nerves just got the nerves really just got too much for him in the end. Played eight test matches, all the test matches on this tour, because Gat said we needed the extra batting. So they dropped Bruce French. He made naught in Brisbane. So he's a bit worried about that. But he says he kept wicket well. In fact, if you have a look on YouTube, your old friend John Embry is a lovely stumping he gets in Brisbane, actually. But then he makes 100 in Perth, which is obviously, you know, and then suddenly he knows he belongs. He said, I haven't looked this up and you might know this. He said, he is the first Cornishman to play for England. And what he, I think what he means is rather than, you know, he lived in Cornwall all his life until he went to Surrey rather than being born in Cornwall and, you know, going to London or Manchester as a young man. So he felt he was really representing Cornwall as well, really felt that strongly. But he, he said he took his, he was training to be an optician and he took all his books with him to Australia to study because he thought he'd be the reserve wicketkeeper. He'd been a reserve to Bob Taylor, I think, on a New Zealand tour a couple of years earlier. But it, it brilliant to talk to him and listen. Really, 
listen to how we all think that struggling with your nerves and I suppose that mental health is quite a modern phenomenon. It's not particularly when you listen. And why, of course it's not. Well, yours, you know that. You've been in professional dressing rooms. Of course it isn't. Really interesting looking, listening to a man who felt maybe he was a bit on the outside to start with, who became an integral part of uh, of what he did. And, and final thing, he says that he said to David Gower, they put, they put on over 200 at Perth. He said to Gow, what in between overs, what are we going to talk about? And Gow said, well, what do you want to talk about? He said, I don't know. Let's talk about wine. So between overs, they talk about wine. You know, do you prefer this Chardonnay or what about that Merlot? Well, I don't know. What's what 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 does that claret do for you? I mean, it's great. The love these are these are the reasons we want to make the podcast. You know, what goes on, you know, what what goes on in the dressing room? You know, Simon and I, Yoz, who have never been in a dressing room like that, love to hear all this stuff. What really goes on? So we're looking back at the 1986-87 Ashley series with Mark Pugac, who's made an eight-part series called Inside the Tour, where he interviews everybody who was on that tour, everybody who mattered who was on that tour, and he'll be able to tell us very soon where you can listen to it. But So we, we move through the first three test matches. England are 1-0 up with two to play, and as Mark said uh, before the break, England only had to draw the series. But of course, you, know, you, you want to win in Australia. We, we saw what happened last time when Australia came to England. They, they, they retained the Ashes, and that was, you know, that was great for them. They won at Old, Old Trafford, but they didn't win at the Oval. And I think you know, as they left, there was a sort of feeling of a sort of bittersweet feeling. So you want to win the series. And then in the, the fourth test in Melbourne, it, well, it was all done in three days. It was all done in you know, Christmas test match, big build-up. Australia, 141 all out on the first day, five five for Gladstone, five for Ian Both. Is, is Gladstone, have you spoken to Gladstone in your podcast, Mark? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Glad he was brilliant because he doesn't expect to play. He hadn't played. Graham Dilly had bolts so well. Graham Dilly gets injured. Now, Glad he tells us. <laughs> Gladdy tells us that Graham Dilly got injured bowling at Elton John on the outfield at the MCG. I'm not sure whether anybody quite believes it, but what is true is that Gat says that um, he's thinking about whatever it is and he turns round. This is about an hour before play. He turns round and Graham Dilly says, I can't play, I've done my knee. So Mike Gatting says to uh, Mickey Stewart, well, who are we going to play? Gladstone Small or Neil Foster? Who's the next cab off the rank? And Mickey says, you've got to decide you're the captain, whoever you want. So he goes with Gladdy, who bowls appalling first over and then suddenly starts to bowl really well. And at the other end, Ian Botham, in his own words, 50% fit after his intercostal injury, is bowling at sort of, you know, 60 miles an hour and, and, and takes five wickets bowling absolute. I mean, watch it on YouTube. He admits bowling absolute filth. They get out every way they can to him. Gladstone bowls really well. Both of them takes five wickets. They take 10 between them. They walk off 141, the uh, the Boxing Day test, which everyone knows is incredibly special. And Gladdy says to both of them something like, I can't believe you took five wickets bowling like that. And Both says, yeah, look at the scoreboard. We've got 10 Aussies between us. You know, what's the problem? Let's get on with it. And then Chris Broad gets another hundred, three, three in a row. And really by the, you know, if, if by the end of day two, you know what's going to happen. It's all done and dusted in effect. I was looking up yeah. uh, Chris Broad's stats actually in the Ashes overall. He's, he played eight Ashes test match in his career and he averages 59 with four hundreds, the three of them in this series. So, you know, very impressive. And I'm really pleased for Gladstone actually that he, that he had his, his day in the sun there because uh, he was a, a real uh, fantastic servant to, to Warwickshire, to county cricket, to cricket generally. He's obviously a, a brilliant ambassador for the game now as well. And uh, before this series, really, his most famous moment, well, certainly in my mind, was uh, as holding the record for the longest ever over. Uh, playing in a county match in Coventry, of all places, uh, he managed to bowl early in a spell a 17-ball over. There were 10 no balls because he kept overstepping and then uh, to try and complete the over, so desperate to complete the over, he bowled off two paces and bowled a wide. Uh, so there were actually 11 extras in an over uh, lasting 17 balls. And uh, at the at the lunch break, Dennis Amis, who was Warwickshire captain, went up to Gladstone and said, you know, I know I did, I did ask for sort of three or four good overs from you at the start, but I didn't want them all at the same time. <laughs> Um, and and, and in Glad was kind of he laughed about it yeah. and and regained his composure and, and actually had a very good season that year. Yeah. But he wasn't the sort of obvious candidate to to open with so many fast bowlers in county cricket at, at that time. You know, absolute catalogue of them all got injured, all uh, having various issues, and so he got in and and absolutely did brilliantly. It was perfect for that pitch in, in Melbourne. 
Well, well, yours, you all know how good a bowler Neil Foster was, but injuries really curtailed his international okay. career, didn't it? I mean, he, uh, I, I think I'm right in saying that his last ever match was a test match in 93 at Lords or somewhere. I don't think he ever played again, but he was such a, he was such a good bowler, but always injury, injury prone. So for Gladstone to do that, and of course, I, I should never say, of course, because why would people know? Gladstone then takes the catch that wins the Ashes. And yours, you will know this playing with him. He tells the story that Phil Edmonds, Philippe, I think, as he calls him, was so particular about where to stand at deep square leg or deep mid wicket. He'd look at you and yours and go, no, I want you one pace to your left. He, he you would. Go, you go, really? Yeah, well, yeah. Come on. So he does this. Uh, he does well, this. Actually, in too. fact, he, you're right. And I mean, just to interrupt, I remember times when I was feeling a backward point to Phil Edmonds, which is a key spot. So I don't know why he put me there, really, because <laughs> backward point, often the ball off the edge or cuts or whatever goes into the backward point region. And a couple of times I sort of did a diving stop to stop the ball and then the odd, let the odd one through my legs. And he actually warped, marched over from his bowling position to where the backward point place was and drew a cross with his boots and said, I want you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do not move. Yeah. From yep. this spot. So yep. I then stood absolutely <laughs> stationary as the next one came past and it sort of slid past about two yards to my left. And he was furious. I said, oh, you told me not to move. So, you know, he's, he was easy to stir up, actually. So he tells Gladdy, deep square leg, it, exactly as you say, yours, draw across with your studs. So he drew across with his studs. Merv Hughes slog sweeps the next ball from John Embry, I think straight into Gladys' hands. I mean, literally doesn't have to move. And as he said afterwards, that was great. The next thing he did was really stupid. He chucked the ball into the crowd. Oh, so as he takes no. the winning catch, he hurls it over his head into the MCG crowd. And, um, you know, they're all obviously high-fiving. They're all off the pitch. And they walk into the dressing room and they walk into Elton John. And the party starts. Basically, the part they party all night at Elton... They tell the story that Elton, obviously this is pre-MP3, uh, so we're in CD territory. Elton John sends his driver out to get a trunk, I don't know from where, and comes back with a whole load of CDs. And Elton John in his suite in, in the Melbourne Hotel DJs for them all night long. But, but doesn't play his own stuff, interestingly. But just and Phil DeFreitas is brilliant throughout this. He roommate, he was a roommate of Botham early on, so Botham was brilliant to him. He he's a twenty year old kid, I think. Um, Daffy, he's like I can't, mm. but I cannot believe what's going on here. These are my heroes, Botham, Gatting, Lauer, Ga uh, uh, Gower, Lamb that I played with, and now here I am, uh, partying with Elton John, having won the Ashes with these boys in in Melbourne. I mean, it's just, it's it's extraordinary. So England win the Ashes in. I think it's like two and a half days. The Melbourne test. Yeah. I mean, it, takes it was. It, it was. Yeah. It was over. In, yeah. It was over in three days. Yeah. 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 Australia. Australia. <clears> one hundred and forty-one and one hundred and ninety-four. England. Three hundred and forty-nine. And you yeah, know, there we go. Winning Brisbane. Two dullish sort of draws, yeah. and then an absolute shellacking in Melbourne. Actually, you know, in a way, not that dissimilar to what happened in 2010-11, when England had that amazing first day and and and, and crushed Australia yeah. and, and to, you know, to, to win the MCG Test match in 2010-11. Now, one, th one thing about that series, you were, you were watching on from a distance, and, and, and yours, you were there as well, but the only game you went to, England lost. Yeah. Yeah, which is the which is the fifth which is the fifth test in Sydney. So they won everything. I mean, okay, they'd lost a few one dayers on the way, but they'd won the tournaments, they'd won the competitions, or they went on to win the competition. But they lost the the fifth test. I remember from from a distance being really really miffed by the fact they lost that test. I don't know why. I mean, they won the series. It, yeah. In a way, it doesn't really matter, does it? It matters a bit more these days because of World Test Championship points. But they lost it. They lost it. Possibly, in, in a way, the best game of the series. Oh, brilliant game. Can yeah. I just can we just have the precursor to that? As you say, they'd already, that before the fifth test, they won the Perth Fremantle mm. America's Cup one day series when Ian Botham opens the batting. That's interesting. And Alan Lamb finds some form. Then we go back to Sydney. I mean, they go back to Sydney. I'm, I get a job then, as I say, working in the dining room. We wake up one morning before the test, and I've got the headline here. The headline in the Sydney Sun is Peter Who. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah. The wrong yeah. table. And the whole story was that Australia had picked the wrong tailor. They meant to pick Mark Taylor, as we know, went on to be captain, very successful opening batsman. But instead, they picked Peter Taylor, sometime off spinner uh, from New South Wales, who's not in the New South Wales team very often because Greg Matthews is the off spinner. And this story goes on and on and on. And he's and Peter Who. The headline is Peter Who. Um, and Peter Taylor's interviewed and is very funny about it in the newspapers. So as part of our podcast, we had to find Peter Taylor. So when we interviewed Alan Border, we went, where, Alan, where is Peter Taylor? 
And Jeff Lawson said the same. And they said he's in a place called Moree, M-O-R-E-E, near the New South Wales-Queensland border. He's a farmer. And we find him. We, t- we track him down. Does, Zoom doesn't work out there, but we get to him. He's absolutely charming. He's very self-deprecating about the whole Peter Who business. He says his brother-in-law rang him up and went, Peter, I think they picked you. We're not sure if they meant to pick you. Mark Taylor left him a voice message to go, I think they've meant to pick you, but they think they've picked me. And my, my, the media are outside here. But as yours, as you remember, he had an outstanding test match. He, he bowled did. really and, well, I mean, and he I, made I, good I, runs down the bottom order. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a very good cricketer. In fact, I, I was playing in Sydney League cricket at the time, grade cricket. And uh, I remember the sort of astonishment when Mark Taylor, who also played in Sydney grade cricket was making stacks of runs and I remember bowling at him thinking wow you know this guy can really bat and suddenly they picked Peter Taylor who I had seen and I had played against and certainly turned the ball a lot but as you say wasn't even really in the New South Wales side and suddenly to to pick him out of the blue it seemed like a kind of uh, almost a desperation from Australia but actually he played really well. Yeah, there's your headline. There's the headline mystery from the pick, uh, Aussie's Sixth pick mystery jab. man. Aussie's pick mystery man. Peter who? By a man, a journalist <laughs> called Norm Tasker. <laughs> and the headline goes, Australia's newest test cricketer, 30-year-old Peter Taylor, thought it was a joke when his family woke him today to tell him he was playing the final test. My brother-in-law woke me with the news. I thought it was some sort of joke. I was going back to bed. I thought they'd mix me up with Mark Taylor. You know, there, there it was. But... No, he, he, it, he he got Botham out for naught in the second innings, which was then Botham's last test innings abroad. Hmm. I mean, he, he got eight wickets in the match. I mean, it's amazing, yeah. actually, to think they might have mixed them up. I mean, how, how on earth can that possibly... <laughs> one is, one's an opening batsman and one's a, an off-break bowler. I mean, the logic was, of course, that they would pick someone like Peter Taylor because it's, the ball turns to Sydney and, yeah. you know... So, but then why would you drop Greg Matthews, who was the premier well, Australian yeah. and New South Wales? The interesting thing, Simon, about that is that it's the days, and Alan Border says this in the podcast, when he, Alan Border, the captain, is presented with the team. He has no input in the team. He, he tells a story of going into, he'd never met Bruce Reed before the first test. He walks into the hotel in Brisbane, sees this tall gangly blonde and thinks, well, it must be Bruce Reed. Goes over and goes, hello, I'm Alan Border. <laughs> Presumably you're opening the bowling for me tomorrow. I mean, it's like that. So when he gets the team for the Sydney test, Alan Border says to us, his first, first reaction is, who's going to open the batting? Because I think they dropped David Boone. They dropped somebody like that. Who's going to open the batting? Yeah, they did. They yeah. did. They did so, drop David Boone. So that's why I think Alan Border thinks they meant to pick Mark Taylor because they didn't have an opening batsman. I mean, can you bat? I mean, literally, they're giving the team. Here you go. Here's your team, Skipper. Right. You've got no input in it. Greg Ritchie opened the batting in that game. Okay. So was, yeah. Yeah. So he, so it was Dean Jones at, at number three. Now, I, I remember something. I don't know whether you remember this, Mark, but Dean Jones in that match, and I remember speaking to him about it later. Um, you know, yeah. D- D- Dean Jones went 184 not out, and he was out early on, caught down yeah. the leg side. Yeah. He was at, he was absolutely banged to rights. But uh, he wouldn't get away was, with it today, would he? No, no. There was no there was no DRS. He didn't have very many at the time, and I, I'm pretty sure I I met I talked I met him on a plane in in India once, and I remember asking him about it, and he thought, ah, yeah, umpire didn't give me out, mate. You know, thought, no, I didn't hit it, brushed it off. Um, only de- walk if de- the car runs out of petrol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, de- he definitely, he definitely yeah. glanced one down the leg side, and it was out early yeah. on. He made 184 not. Out. He made 184 yeah. not out. Yeah. Out of three, 343. I mean, that's a that is a pretty mm. special effort. Mm. And so, you were you there, and and yours were you there all five days or most of the game? I, 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 I every time I finished my, every time I basically every time I finished giving Jeffrey his last cup of tea at 4:30, I would run into the. Co- uh, into the cars, he get changed and then run round to the hill and watch the last two hours. I was there absolutely, and it was a brilliant test match. And actually, Peter Taylor is very complimentary about Mike Gatting that England went for it. But I yeah. think if you look, Gat gets. I think he get. I got it in my mind's eye. Bowled by Peter Sleep at the start of the last twenty, and England lost by what forty five runs or forty 55, runs? 55, fifty five. Fifty five runs. Good, good, memory, yeah. good memory. They were go. They were going for it, and I and and and. It was a brilliant test match. I'm really pleased England went for it. And you're right, Simon, that as England fans, we thought, oh, so what? Yeah, won the series. But Alan Border says that was a massive win and it was the start of the recovery. Well, it was, because, yeah. of course, after that, England barely won a test match against <laughs> Australia, did they, for, for about <laughs> 15 years? And yeah. I, I, I was I was at the test. Uh, I, I was actually a net bowler for England in that, in that particular match because I was playing cricket in Sydney. I was, you know, in regular cricket kind of uh, form generally. I, I was doing a bit of writing for the Australian as well. So 
dipping in and out of, of the series as a writer, but also as I was working in Sydney, Gat and two or three of my other teammates, in fact, there was Embry and Edmonds and also Wilf Slack was in that uh, squad as well, uh, the, the late Wilf Slack. And uh, they, in fact, he, Slacky was a, a real avid netter. And he was like, Yozzy, you've got to get down here and bowl to me in the nets because I'm not getting enough hits. So I was in the nets for sort of the first session, pretty much, uh, in the Sydney nets and then kind of nipping into the dressing room to uh, to, to have a kind of rather privileged uh, view of the rest of the game. Um, fascinating match and really disappointing that England lost. But in a way, uh, it was Australia who had to kind of do something to turn their whole... Uh, they'd lost the Ashes in 85, lost the Ashes in 86-7, so they needed to have a real root and branch uh, upheaval of their of their cricket, and and it sort of started. That was the kind of catalyst for it, I suppose. That mm. test match. Oh, yeah. I mean, Alan Border admits it. Fun enough, he says he talks about sitting in a hotel in Melbourne after losing in three days, and and the the the, the sort of subplot to Melbourne, as some people might remember, is at the same time Pat Cash is winning the Davis Cup at Kuyong, down the road from the MCG, and Bob Hawke goes on national television the next day and goes, "Shame there aren't eleven Pat Cashes at the, there weren't eleven Pat Cashes at the MCG." We talked to Pat Cash in our podcast, you know, and it's great. Bob Hawke, who loved his cricket, and. Didn't he have the record for a yard of ale once at Oxford? I think he did. He uh, he got well stuck into the cricketers and Border goes, that was the Nadir Melbourne and we had to start. We had to draw a line in the sand. And to win immediately in Sydney, I think gave them gave them that belief that maybe the way they were going to go about it was the right way. And I think we can say it probably was given the next 18 years. It didn't uh, it yeah. didn't dim England's celebrations no. though because I remember uh, after that test match being invited out with Embers and, and Edmonds and a couple of the other uh, my Middlesex colleagues to join them in the Siebel Townhouse for a sort of celebration dinner and we were sat uh, at a table in the corner of their restaurant in the Siebel Townhouse and uh, ha- enjoying sort of you know a few beers and things and suddenly uh, from the next table arrives uh, a man a waiter actually with um, uh, a just a serviette and on the serviette is written four words to je john embry congratulations ej <laughs> and it was elton john sitting at the next table uh, who accompanied the serviette with a bottle of dom perignon so you know the, the top of the range uh, champagne and the reason why he'd sent the serviette rather than himself is he'd had this voice operation and he couldn't speak mm. and he wasn't allowed to speak. Mm. So rather than sort of trying to, trying to, you know, I don't know, do sign language or something, he'd sent this message written on a serviette and we enjoyed his Don Perignon and then later had a party upstairs. Yeah. Well, they'd had a part. They then went on... Um... Because obviously they've then got the World Series with uh, West Indies as the third team. I think by this stage, having won the the, the Ashes and having won the, the the Fremantle America's Cup Series, they were sort of quite demob happy. Um, they had a party in the Bondi Junction uh, apartments one night, actually before the SCG te- one day, which I'm sure we'll talk about because it was very famous. And uh, David Gower says that George Michael came, that Dennis Lilly came, and then got stuck in the lift. And apparently he's very claustrophobic. Who isn't claustrophobic being stuck in a lift? So I think, you know, by this stage, they're all, you know, there's quite a lot of demob happiness, which is fair enough, isn't it? But there was plenty that went on in that one-day series as well, that triangular yeah. one-day series. Let's just dot the I's and, and, and cross the T's of the, te- the test series, the Ashes win. You, we, you mentioned that uh, England went for it in that in that final test match. They needed just over 300 to win the game. It was a really, Australia 3-4-3, England 2-7-5, Taylor 6 for 78, <laughs> Australia 2-51. So England needed just over 300 to, to win the match. They were 2-33 for 5. And then yeah, they went for it. They they could have they could have played out a draw. They went for it and they and they lost the game and they lost their last five wickets for you know 20 odd, which is actually which is sort of actually what happened in all, every test match for about the next for about the next yeah. 19 years, um, until what happened in, in, in 2005. So England won that series on the 28th of December 1986. Their next Ashes series win was on the 12th of September 2005. So it really was a yeah, an amazing change around after England dominating the Ashes for a, a few years there in the middle of the 80s. The other, the other thing to say as well, um, most runs in the series, three of the four top run scorers were Australians, bizarrely. Dean Jones, 511, then Broad was second. 
Border and Marsh, third and fourth. And the leading wicket taker was Bruce Reed. You mentioned in the tall, sort of tall mm-hmm. left armour. He took the most wickets in this series. But England, England won two one, and they sort of controlled the series. And Australia just had that consolation win uh, right at the end. But then they, as you say, they moved on to the one day series. And England took that down as well. And there was that, that that famous game that you were at, Mark. So the the we I had I mean I, why would I have been Simon? You're the same. We had never we had never seen floodlit cricket. I was eighteen. I was about to be nineteen. We'd ne- I'd never been to a floodlit match. Why should I have been? Yours, you would have been. You'd been an Australian. Probably played in a little bit. So go. So so I wasn't working this day. A day nighter against um, Australia at the SCG. Uh, started at two o'clock. I, f- I found it in my diary. We found a place underneath the scoreboard, the blazing sun. We all know what the, the, the cloud, you know, cloudless day, how blue the sky is. You know, it's it's a completely new experience. And the hill was a proper hill in those days. It was extremely lively. You know, there was a lot of beer and I was certainly not innocent of that, of that either. And then uh, if no one's been to Australia, it gets dark very, very quickly, doesn't it? Which is why floodlit cricket works so well, because almost between the innings and the game's going along, you know, chasing about 240, whatever, not doing very, not doing very well in the end. And Alan Lamb really hadn't middled one basically all tour. We come to the last over. They need 18 to win. And I, I, I don't know what you two think. I would when I try to explain it to people today, 18 to win then is probably 25 to win today, probably off the last over. Would that would you say that? Mm. Yeah, some, yeah, some of that. Yeah, we, we, yeah, pretty, we, pretty, but out, out of range, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, with Carl Brathway, of course, took Ben Stokes yeah. to his four sixes in the in the T Twenty match, and that that seemed remarkable at the time. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking at the time, England, England are going to win the World T Twenty in in two thousand and yeah. sixteen. So, you know, what do they need? Eighteen, nineteen. So, yeah. so that, and that was in the yeah. modern game. So back yeah. then, yeah, I mean, it was it was sort of impossible, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I in fact, I play, I bowled the final over of the nineteen eighty six Benson and Hedges final, and uh, fourteen. I was defending fourteen. And, you know, you were absolutely expected to win if you were defending yeah. 14. And we did. I was hit for six off the third ball, but uh, we won by five runs. So you're right. 18 was was totally out of out of any batsman's perception or, or league, basically. What, what I what I can remember is because the beer was clearly talking. So I, I'd had a, a I read my diary yesterday. It was hilarious. Some friend of mine thought he was in the kangaroo front row, which is the rug, Aussie friend. It was a rugby league team and sort of had done a front row a push down the hill and almost been arrested by the uh, by the police. I wrote in my diary that I met a bloke who'd fought for the world welterweight title who supported Arsenal outside the Kazis. I have no idea who I'm talking about there. But before the last over, I do remember very vividly turning around to two Aussies and saying, I bet you a slab of beer each that Alan Lamb gets this. I mean, it was obviously an insane thing to say. <laughs> um, Alan Lamb tells us that he's batting with the Freighters and they're both sponsored by Slazinger. And he says to Daffy, I can't hit one out the middle. Your bat looks much nicer. Give me your bat. So he, so they swap bats. But even the first, they, they, Dirk Wellham's fielding at uh, deep extra cover. They managed to steal two to him. He then hoiks one through mid-wicket. He then very cleverly off one ball. He hits it again to Dirk Wellham in exactly the same place. And he delays going back for the second. And what he's doing, Lammy, is he's, he's basically putting his body between Dirk Wellham throwing it and Bruce Reed, who's bowling it. And at the last minute, goes back for a second so that Reed just doesn't get a sight of the ball and misfields it. And they go back for two and Reed complains. And then he gets one out the middle, yours. Do you remember? He gets one yeah. out the middle then and hits it over long on. No, I do. And um, <laughs> I have two things to say. I mean, one, I was, I was actually the 12th man for that game. So just before the final over with Lammy, uh, who was about, I don't know, 30 or 40 odd not out at the time, he beckoned for a drink. <laughs> And so I had to run out. I had to run out onto the Sydney cricket ground and give him a, a quick drink and sort of a towel to sort of just uh, douse himself down. And he looked, he looked confident of doing it. You know, it was amazing, really. I mean, it was one of those tours where it was a can-do tour, wasn't it? Where just uh, amazing exploits came off. And and I ran back into the dressing room. We were all absolutely on the back of our seats. You know, not right. It was like a white knuckle ride that that match. And seeing Lammy do it, and I remember when he did that, uh, as you say, hit the ball out to Dirk Wellham, and then literally sort of just hesitated yeah. before running back for the second to slightly block the the bowler's view. 
uh, a sort of professional foul, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it, it sort of worked and the, the, the fielder misfielded it, the bowler misfielded it, and they managed to get back for two. And then he he nailed a couple to, to finish the game. And it, it, was, it was just madness in the dressing room when that happened. It, everyone was hugging and laughing. Yeah. And it was an extraordinary moment where, you know, the unlikely came off and Lammy just came back in grinning from cheek to cheek. <laughs> He actually wins it with a ball to spare, amazing. He wins it with his, with the, the six over long on's a great shot. And then he absolutely clips one through uh, square leg for four, hits a four and 20 pie sign. I, I, looked, I looked it up on YouTube the other day. And then, and then on YouTube, you see the shot of the hill and all these English fans running around, jumping on each other. And I do say on the podcast, if, if you could zoom in like a police camera, you would find me in there leaping over somebody. <laughs> uh, clearly, my two Aussie pals I bet, bet a slab of beer with had, had, had gone off home by then. They weren't going to pay up. But it was, it was, you know, first of all, to go to a day-nighter was incredible. But then to see that finish... And, you know, I, I said to David Gower once, 10, 15 years ago, not for this podcast, I said, I, I said to him, you'll remember the World Cup final you played in and a few one-day matches, but there must be 98% of one-days you just don't remember. I mean, why would you? Game four of, you know, 82, 83, whatever it is. So, but you must remember that one. And they all do, of course, don't they, yours? You in the dressing room. And they all remember that one because it was just uh, absolutely out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere. Uh, it sort of summed up the whole tour in, in a way. Yeah. I mean, that, it's sort of that that tour almost came out of nowhere and in a strange. Mm. I know they won in '85 in England, but they, you know they weren't fancy to do well in '86, '87. But they and they won the lot. So they, they won four and lost four of the group matches. Got through to the final. It was Australia, West Indies, and England in the World Series, and they beat Australia two in the finals at the MCG and the SCG. It was a best of three situation in those days. They won the Perth Challenger and they won the Ashes. And you've, you've, you've made this podcast series, Mark. Where can, where can people uh, listen to it? Where can they access it? So it's Friday, December the 3rd. It's out on Audi, A-U-D-D-Y. It costs you absolutely nothing. So you, it's an eight-part podcast series made with Jonathan Overend, who we've all worked with, brilliant broadcaster, but a fan, phenomenal producer as well. And uh, fun enough, he just rang me while we were doing it. Mike Gatting's on it. Uh, so we hear from Mike Gatting, Ian Botham, uh, David Gower, Jack Richards, uh, Phil DeFreitas, Gladstone Small, Chris Broad, Alan Border, Francis Edmonds. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Francis Edmonds, because she'd written the book the year before Another Bloody Tour in the West Indies, and then she wrote Cricket 4X Cricket. Cricket yeah. um, and we hear from Jeff Lawson and Peter Taylor. Um, so it's wow. it, it's been it's been great fun to do it. And, yes, the first couple of episodes are obviously the end of 86 summer, English summer, both of them coming back first. You know, then we get to Australia, can't back, can't bowl, can't field. But then just getting into the into the dressing room, as it were, and, and hearing the stories, obviously, is a lot of fun off the pitch. But then on the pitch and the just the, the great uh, – Ian Botham said it was the happiest tour he ever went on. Incredible camaraderie on that tour. Tour. And you, interesting your stats there, Simon. It just shows that what a team. I know Chris Ward made three centuries, but yeah. everybody pitched in. Really, everybody pitched in. Embry and Evans did a brilliant job. Graham Dilly opening the bowling, both with a hundred uh, at Brisbane, then five at the MCG. You know, Mike Gatting's captaincy. Gow got a hundred at Perth. Jack Richards. Literally everybody. But uh, oh, complete unsung hero, Bill Athey. Mm. Uh, Bill, a hero of yours, Simon, surely growing up. Bill Athey yeah. got, uh, uh, got 70 odd at Brisbane, I think got 90 odd at the Wacker as a, as a makeshift opener, really, because I think yours, your teammate, Will Slap, might have thought that he was going to open. But everybody pitched in and then it carried on into the two one day series as well. So, slightly under the radar, the, the last of the old fashioned tours in many ways. And then when you quote that date, Simon, that is remarkable. Is it 28th of December, 1986? So I'm yeah. a student. 12th of September, 2005, you and I are in, you know, next door commentary boxes at the Oval. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it, for England not to have won in between? The other remarkable stat about that uh, tour was that uh, Mike Gatting captained England 23 times in tests. Yep. And those two test wins in uh, Brisbane and Melbourne were the only two tests he, he won as captain. Yep. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it yeah. is, isn't it? But, yeah. but you know, uh, so England have won once since then. So they've won one Ashes tour in 35 years since then. In Australia. In Australia. In Australia. Sorry, in Australia. Yeah. yeah, in Australia. I mean, that is, that is remarkable. You know, that just shows, doesn't it, how hard it is to win. And I suppose just underlines the task ahead for those who are about to start at the Gabba. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great to have you with us, Mark, to look yeah. back on uh, 86 days. And we, we can't let you go, though, without talking about your your sort of your life now, really. And you were, you know, you were on our television screens all last summer presenting uh, the Euros, you know, England getting to the final. 
Um, what's what's that like as a broadcaster to have that that spotlight on you? You know, you know mil- millions of people. Well, okay, more people, of course, watching on BBC, obviously. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the 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 final. Yeah, uh, you're there, and you're you know, Roy Keane is there. I've got to ask you what it's like to work with Roy Keane. But what, what's it like? What is it like to you know when the when the the titles roll and it's the European Championship final and England are in the final. What's that like? Well, it's great, and I mean, I mean, any any pressure is self-inflicted, of course, because you want to do the best job you can. Um, but it's, it, it, honestly, it's no different to to what you think when you're going on TMS and you're at Lords or or you know the MCG. You think this is what I've worked hard for, and this is what I wanted to do, and this is what I'm incredibly incredibly privileged to do. And all you can do then is do the very best. You know, I have a little joke with myself. Try not to cock it up. There's a good boy. You know, but you know, no one. You know, we're all trying to do our best. But I think it's really important that, that you enjoy it and therefore that the, the, the viewer is going to enjoy it. So um, I get a little bit nervous, I suppose. I dare say you do, too. But I, I quite like the nerves because that no, I, I may be completely wrong here, but I always think the nerves produces a bit of adrenaline, which makes you focus, makes you really concentrate. And I'm actually much more nervous. I would be more nervous if I if I weren't because. I'd be thinking I'd be too laid back about it all. So and working with Roy is brilliant. I mean, he's a great professional. I mean, I think Roy. I've never, I think I have asked him that. I'm assuming, and I think I'm right in thinking they'd win the title at, you know, five o'clock on a Saturday. I should think by half past five on a Saturday, it, you know, that excitement's gone. He's thinking about the next title. He is an ultimate professional. I mean, look at what he's won. And I think that's, and I like to think whatever anybody thinks of what I do, I am a professional. And that's, you know, where I will start from. And I think that's what he responds to people being professional and, and, you know, doing the best job they can and giving, you know, and preparing themselves the best they can and putting themselves in the best position to do the best job they can. Um, but it's, it was, it was great. It was true. I mean, the summer was amazing. Um, it, it was, and, and it just underlines what, what we three know. We don't need to be told this but it's worth reiterating sport has an impact and a range that nothing else in this country has and i'm convinced of that you only have to look at the figures i mean i'll give you another figure simon uh, with my itv hat on we had 28 million for the semi-final against denmark which is the biggest single figure for any single event for a single channel ever you know and you realize that's you know only sport can do that britain's got talent doesn't do that royal weddings don't do that uh you know i'm a celebrity doesn't do that strictly doesn't come dancing doesn't do that only sport does that. And I think, mm. you know, that's, it's an amazingly, especially at the moment, I think we need to remember what an amazingly powerful force for good it can be if we can harness it the right way. Did, did, do you go home in the evening or after that and think, God, 28 million people watched me tonight? I mean, it's not, yeah. I know it's not just you. Yeah. I know it's the players, it's yeah, the yeah. players, but, you know, you are part of that. I mean, it's, sure. it's, an, incre- it's an incredible thing, isn't it, to yeah. sort of be part of? I, I, um, the older I get, the more I really realise we're all a product of where we come from. And my mum and dad were brilliant people. And my mum, you know, sadly, they're both gone. She was hilariously funny. And when I was about six, I was the youngest of three, two sisters. When I was six or seven, I was being really precocious about something. What a surprise. And she just looked at me. She went, Mark, nobody likes a show off. And I've just, that's like tattooed across my forehead. You know what I mean? So I don't think 28 million or whatever, because I just think of my mum and what she would say, which is, you know, Come on, sunshine. It's not about you, and as you quite rightly say, they're not watching you. So that that I quite I, that 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 I like that I like thinking of it that way because that really keeps yeah. me grounded. Do you know what I mean? And, and you say Tuesday, Roy Keane, it's Tuesday morning, put the bins out, sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and Roy, you say Roy Keane's very professional. He must. He's a bit scary as well, though, isn't he? he is he not a bit scary? Well. Uh, he could give you, he's extremely funny. He's one of the funniest people you will ever meet. Um, he, he, he's given me a scary look, but he's only given me a scary look if I've asked him a really stupid question. And again, I don't mind that. It keeps me on my toes. Don't ask a stupid question. Simon, you and I have been to, well, you interview cricketers still all the time. You and I interviewed enough sportsmen and women that Roy Keane or someone else, and if you ask them a stupid question, they'll give you a really shitty answer, won't they? And frankly, we deserve it for asking a stupid question. So, yeah, he's got a scare. He's got a scary look. But as I say, it's only if you say something really daft. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you talk about difficult people to interview. One of the hardest people I found to interview um, when he was playing was Michael Atherton. Oh and the my reason- God, he was a and nightmare. The- <laughs> and the- but the reason I mentioned Michael Atherton, yours, is because. <laughs> Because he's our next guest. A lovely segue there, Simon. He's our next guest in the World's Best Cricket Club next Thursday uh, to talk about the Ashes. And it's an interesting segue, really, because, of course, he came in 
to the England team pretty much after this 86-7 Ashes series win. In about 89, he made his test debut and he played throughout that uh, calamitous period where England couldn't win the Ashes. So he's going to look back on, on all those Ashes series and his career in the world's best cricket club, which is our virtual cricket club we run every Wednesday or Thursday night. It's this Thursday, the 2nd of December, uh, the day before he heads out to cover the Ashes for The Times. And uh, he's going to be our guest. And you can get to the World's Best Cricket Club by going to www.worldsbestcricketclub.com. It's £6 a month to join. We have a live interview every week. And it's to raise money for the Professional Cricketers Trust, which is the charity that looks after players who fall on hard times. So it's a really good cause. And we have a great community there, actually. So you should join us. Oh, I'll, I will definitely do that. Now I do that. Can I tell my quick Afton story? So, uh, Simon, you weren't there. The first tour I did was to New Zealand. And the first test match, you remember the famous Danny Morrison couldn't get him out in two sessions. And for some reason, TMS was on one side of the ground and five live I was working for us on the other. Jeremy, as it comes apparent that England aren't going to get him out, Jeremy Coney says to Aggers, well, this is going to be a fun interview for you to do, isn't it? What sort of mood's Atherton going to be in? And, and Aggers, I swear this is true, Aggers pauses live on TMS and goes, yes. I think I'll get the boy to interview him. <laughs> and I am sent to interview Atherton. Now, I, I, I've said this to Michael before, um, accident of birth. We're exactly the same age. We played football against each other at school. He's a month younger than me. And I, so, I want some to listen. In my next life, sunshine, these, these might be t- I might be the England captain. You might be the one talking. Imagine how tough that interview was, Simon. To interview I, I, Atherton when they couldn't get Danny Morrison out for two sessions. Yeah. Do you remember the Sun? Do you remember the Sun headline after that game? Uh, the Sun headline was "You'll never get them out" with the U E W E as in sheep. Yeah, yeah. You'll never get them out. And a sheep on the head of Atherton's body, I think. Yeah. It's actually when you speak to others these days, it's hard to imagine he was such a oh, difficult oh my God. person to interview. Gotcha. But he was. Yeah. Yeah. And the worst no, was when you had to interview him. Remember, in front of all the rest of the media, I had to do that at Headingley yeah. when they'd lost yeah. the first test to the West Indies. I was terrified, not just because, you know, I, we were new to the job and I had to interview him. But, you know, all the press there, all the big beasts of the press there. Well, mm. thanks a lot. This is a nightmare. Yeah, been, been there, <laughs> frankly, done that. Frankly, got... <laughs> Roy Keane is a hell of a lot easier than Michael yeah. Atherton. When <laughs> you haven't got Danny Morrison out. Yeah. Well, others yeah, others will be great listening on, uh, yeah. on Thursday. I mean, thanks very much to Mark. Brilliant to get all your memories of 86, 87. Best of luck with the, the podcast, uh, eight-part series being, uh, being published very soon, and you'll better catch up with that. And we'll be doing uh, a couple of preview podcasts uh, before the Ashes get underway on the 8th of December in Brisbane. So, yeah, thanks to yours. Thanks to Mark. Thanks very much for joining us. Hope you've enjoyed it. Goodbye for now. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.